towards Christmas together. We just come through this this amazing story. We're celebrating with great joy. And, and as we're walking through the Gospel of Matthew, all of a sudden, Matthew takes a turn in the story. Honestly, I think a lot of preachers probably skip this passage because it really is a downer on the Sunday after Christmas. But it's listed here for a reason, and if it's here for a reason, it must speak to us. And so today we're going to look at one of the harder passages of of Scripture, of the Christmas story, and to think about what does it mean for us today? What is it telling us about who God is, and how does that play into who we are? It's almost the anti-Christmas story. Christmas is supposed to be warm and soft and a uh, kind of something you could put on Instagram, right? I mean, cute baby Jesus flanked by Mary and Joseph and the sheep and the donkeys and the cow and the magi and the star and the shepherds and the angels rejoicing in the fields. It's, it's kind of, it would make a great Hallmark Hall of Fame kind of story if there wasn't already 714 of those. But that isn't a full story. And it's not the end of the story. Before we even get out of December, we run into the dark side of Christmas. Before Jesus' birth, the angel of the Lord told Mary and Joseph that Jesus had come to save us from our sin. And sin is ugly. And sin is evil. For it is a rebellion against God that sets us on a a road towards death. This warm and fuzzy manger baby came to save us from every form of evil. And that's a heavy calling. And that's a huge burden. And Jesus, Mary, and Joseph discovered just how hard that is in this morning's scripture. I'd invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. It's after the, um, it's after the, the Magi visiting. Matthew 2 beginning at verse 13. And would you stand for the reading of the gospel this morning? It says this, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother in the night, left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, the angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in, a place, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God given for the people of God, and we respond together by saying, thanks be to God. 
You can be seated. Our Bible story today takes place when Jesus is is not quite probably two years old. The Magi, the astrologers, the, the scientists of the day, they're from either Persia or Arabia, and they've been searching for this new king of the Jews. They've been following this super bright star that has marked the the presence of of a new king. And and the Magi, they stop and ask Herod, the king uh, in Judea, for directions, which is a big mistake. It's like the story I heard Michael Keaton, the actor, tell. And he was in 2017, he was in Glasgow, Scotland, filming a movie. And he came out of a restaurant after having dinner, and he wasn't sure how to get back to his hotel. And so he stopped somebody along the way and said, hey, can you give me instructions on, on where to go? And, of course, the guy that he stopped was quite intoxicated, but the man was sure he could help him to get back to the hotel. He said, let me in the car. I'll show you the way. So he let him in, and the intoxicated man began giving Keaton very detailed directions on how, where to go, and, and Keaton was relieved. I mean, it, it seemed like he totally knew what he was doing, even though he was fairly drunk. Well, did it work out? Not so much. He ended up driving to the man's own home. The man got out and said, thanks for the ride. Went inside. Keaton found himself in the driveway, still not knowing how to get to his hotel. Moral of the story. Be careful who you get directions from. Not a bad moral for life. Be careful who you get directions from. Imagine I have approached the wrong man for the direction. King Herod is literally licking his chops. I mean, he is excited that he's going to be, be asked, oh, sure, he says, absolutely, there's a new king. I'd love to know about that. In fact, when you find him, let me know where he is because I want to come and I want to worship him as well. Evidently for Herod, worship and murder meant the same thing. So the Magi found the baby Jesus and worshipped him, and they returned by another route because they were warned in a dream of Herod's intent. An angel also came to Joseph in a dream, told him to take Mary, take Jesus, escape to Egypt until further notice because Herod is going to try to kill the Christ child. Joseph, true to his character, bundles them all up, obeys, and takes off and escapes to Egypt. In the meantime, King Herod has his soldiers kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem, ages two and under, so that he might eliminate the chance of any one of them growing up and challenging him to his throne. After Herod's death, Joseph brings his family back to Judea, but out of fear of Herod's son, who is now king, they settle in a backwater, obscure little place called Nazareth that would fulfill a prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. We all get inspired at Christmas. We get inspired at Christmas because for a moment, we forget the huge burden there is in just doing life, in being human. To be human is to experience all kinds of hurts and pain. Christ came both to experience pain and ultimately to deliver people from that pain. Jesus was barely able to walk when he was bundled up and they had to run Egypt. He experienced a hard life, including a horrible death. And so this morning, I want to remind you why this is important. I want to remind you why a passage like this is important and why it actually gives us hope and how it calls to be a people who live out our faith. We're looking at a big theological word this morning called incarnation. 
That's what we call God taking on human flesh. That's what we call God breaking open the heavens and coming down and being one of us. But you might get to understand what the theological word is or, or what it means, but, but the question is, what does it mean for us? Incarnation, God in the human flesh, means God did not just take on human characteristics. God took on the human condition. Aches and pains, hungers and thirst, poverty and powerlessness. Jesus didn't just look like us. He lived like us. Liam, you want to advance to point one? Thanks. I don't want to pick on anybody. Maybe I do a little. Some televangelists and prosperity gospel preachers like to preach about victorious Christian living. I believe in victorious Christian living. It's just that that we have differing definitions on what that means. I think that sometimes what I hear them say is, is if you're right with God, then everything is just going to go perfect. That if you're right with God, you're not going to have any hardships. You're going to have whatever you need, and God's going to answer your prayer exactly the way you prayed it. And if he doesn't, then it means that you're not living your life the way you're supposed to. It was a certain televangelist. I'll withhold the names to protect the guilty, but you might have seen it in the news a couple of years ago, who challenged his followers that God was calling them to raise $54 million for a private jet. Now, he already had a private jet. This is just one that was faster so he could get his work done quicker. And he isn't alone. I saw an interview of another preacher, televangelist. I'll say his initial is a C. Um, An interview on 2020, Pastor C described why he needed a jet because he described commercial air travel as being, quote, in a long tube with a bunch of demons, end quote. Now, I'm not saying I disagree with Pastor C about commercial air travel. Um, I mean, if you've been around some of the kids and sickness and all of those things, but, but is that really how God works for those who love and obey him? That's not how God works in most people's lives. That's not how things worked in Jesus' life. Life is often hard, and life is often unfair, especially to the great saints, and sometimes um, even because they are great saints. Even the perfect Son of God walked through hardship in his life. That's why there is a cross, not a crown, at the center of our faith. Incarnation, God in human flesh, tells us that God can work in the toughest circumstances and the strangest places. Jesus didn't have to come in the form of a tiny baby. Jesus didn't have to be born into a poor family. I mean, if you were to rank the least powerful kind of groups of people in the world, I'm sure that somewhere in your, in your top five w- would be newborns, refugees, and economically challenged. Jesus fits all three of those categories. He chose to take on the human condition in its toughest state so that we would understand that God with us is not just with God with us when things are good. It is God with us in every circumstance that we face. I read this week about a mom whose son was born with cystic fibrosis. He's been in and out of the hospital uh, all of his life and finally was able to have a a double lung uh, transplant, but it's developed pneumonia and is in the hospital. She writes these words. She said, I told the Lord when we began this transplant journey that I was not looking forward to it and he would have to take me every step of the way. 
I've learned that God gives me a lantern to carry that provides me just enough light to see the step that I'm on. My desire is that he would give me a floodlight so that I could see all the places we are going. But she said, the desire of my son's heart is for God to be glorified in everything. And our whole family has drawn strength from seeing him suffer well. I might only see a step at a time, but God is with us. When I read that story this week, I was reminded of two ladies that we've lost recently. Cheryl Otremba and Loey Broderson, who have taught us to look for God's love and wisdom and mercy and goodness as we walk through suffering. Our passage today reminds us to look for God's love and wisdom and mercy and goodness in every circumstance of our life, to remind us that God is at work even in the tough places, even in the strangest places, and maybe especially because they are the tough places. Finally, the incarnation, God in the human flesh, tells us that God's ways can be trusted because God's love has been tested. You think about that for a moment. God's ways can be trusted because God's love has been tested. It is a shallow love that is not tested. John Hicks' son Joshua was born with a syndrome that is a genetic disorder that causes uh, mental and physical deterioration. And and he's written a book uh, about their journey. It's entitled, Yet Will I Trust Him? Hicks says that that one of of, uh, Joshua's... uh, biggest things he wanted to do in life was to ride the school bus with his older sister. And so the day finally came that he got old enough and he was strong enough and they stood on the corner and they waited for the school bus to come around the corner and and Joshua jumps up and down with great joy and they watch him go off to school. So the Hicks were puzzled when a few weeks later Joshua wasn't excited about riding the school bus anymore. In fact, he was dragging his feet about going. He was trying to talk his parents into letting him not go to school at all. So they walked him down to the bus stop. John walked him there and and watched him get on the bus. And he said, after I watched him get on the bus, then I understood what the problem was. With the windows down on the bus, I heard the older kids making fun of Joshua. And he saw his son stumble down the aisle, just waiting for somebody, hoping somebody would move over so he could sit down. And he said, it broke his heart. He said, how could they treat my son with this way because of his disability. And he began to pour out his anger to God. And he's asking questions. God, why does it have to hurt this way? Why do bullies have to be a part of this? Why, why wasn't Joshua born healthy? Why is Joshua's short life filled with weakness and rejection? And he said he was just pouring himself out. He's crying before God. And he said in the midst of that, all of a sudden he said, I felt God's presence with me. And he said it was like God said to me, John, I get it. I understand. They did that to my son as well. You aren't alone, John. I am with you. You see, Jesus didn't take on human characteristics. He took on the human condition. He did it to show us that God can work in the toughest circumstances and the strangest places. And through Jesus... God showed us that God's ways can be trusted because God's love has been tested. The Christ of Christmas, the Messiah, the Son of God, has to pack up and flee. That's not how we would have written the story. 
Just because you're in a place of confusion or loss or suffering does not mean that God is not working. The ending of the story of the first Christmas is neither friendly nor cuddly. Jesus took on weakness and frailty and poverty and persecution. He took on suffering. He gave up his power to the power structures of the world to be oppressed and constrained so that he could prove once and for all that the power of God cannot be constrained. Look at all the faithful believers in the Bible who've given up their homes, left their families because God has said go. Look at believers in the early church who who were imprisoned and beaten and even killed for telling the truth of Jesus. Does that not sound like victorious Christian living? Not the way some define it, but that's what faithfulness looks like. It's sometimes hard, and it's sometimes unfair, and Jesus came to show us that we can trust. We can trust God in the present, no matter how it hurts. We can trust God in a future that he is the God who wipes away every tear from our eyes, and that one day there will be no more pain. There will be no more death. Folks, that's what I call victorious Christian living. That no matter what your circumstances are, we serve a God who has the ultimate power over sin and death and empowers us then to be his hands and his feet. That empowers us to be his mouthpiece. That empowers us to be what we call the church. The beacon of hope to the world. I I love Psalm 139. It says, if I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wing of the dawns and I settle on the far side of the sea, Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Favorite bumper sticker I ever saw was on a North Idaho Subaru. This thing had so much rust on it, I'm not sure what the original color was. The the, um, fenders were all different colors. There was at least one window that was broken. It was missing the front bumper. But the sticker on the back said, quote, This is not an abandoned car, end quote. And that's the message of Christmas. This is not an abandoned world. You are not an abandoned people. Circumstances aren't perfect, but God is with us. God tore open the heavens to remind us that we are not alone. And the gift of Christmas has been given, but now the work of Christmas begins. To share the news of Emmanuel, to go into the next year with a hope because God is with us, to to live out the message of God's forgiveness on the cross so completely and so grace-filled in our lives that how we live and and how we interact with others becomes a living testimony of the work that God is doing in and through us. Christmas is not about what we consume. It is about with whom we commune. And so it's time in this new year, it's time to set aside some of our pesky, pesky preferences that are rooted in what we consume and to let the focus be on who we commune with in partnering with the Holy Spirit to represent God's love that has come down to the world. By definition, being a follower of Jesus will not be easy. But by the power of God's Holy Spirit, you are not alone. 
And in 2020, we need to be reminded, and we need to remind the world that God has broken in, that there is forgiveness for sin and selfishness, that there is hope for a future, and there is joy that isn't always tied to the circumstances we find ourselves in. There is joy to the world because love came down. Let the work of Christmas begin. Let the work of Christmas be lived out in our hands and in our feet. Let the work of Christmas be lived out in in our voices. Let the work of Christmas be lived out in the priorities of our resources. Let the work of Christmas reflect the God who continues to come down. Let the work of Christmas begin through God's Spirit at work in us. so thankful this season that we have been in, in which we have been reminded week after week that you are the God who breaks in. And Lord, as we leave this season, we don't want to be a people who just put a period at the end of the sentence and then just wait for the first Sunday of Advent to roll around next year. But God, let the work of Christmas begin in us. May the work that you do through the gift of your spirit in our life, may it, may it encourage us and may it drive us. May we be a people who are so changed by your presence that we want to share that love with those people that are around us. Father, may our hands, may our voices, may our feet, may our resources be dedicated to you in this coming year. And may your love not just flow down upon us, but flow through us as the work of Christmas is done by your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord bless you as you go. See you next year.